listening to the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. Hi, this is Shane Vanderhart. Welcome to another episode. And it is Friday the 13th in the year 2020. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'm not actually superstitious. Friday the 13th have always been fine for me. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's the memes out there kind of hilarious. So anyway, I hope you're having a great Friday. It, it, you know, thankfully it is the end of the week and, and hope you had a good one and hope you have some great weekend plans. For this episode of the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast, I spoke this morning with James Brohl. He's the Senior Research Fellow, or a Senior Research Fellow, at Mercatus Center at George Mason University in Northern Virginia. He's also an adjunct professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School, also at George Mason University. Uh, He and I discuss regulatory reform. Not exactly a sexy topic, but one that's incredibly important for our economy. So without further ado, here's my conversation with James Brawl. James, welcome to Caffeine Thoughts Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So um, I, the first thing I want to ask you, because our, our, my listeners may not be aware of, of the, who, you, who employs you. Uh, you work for uh, the Mercatus Center at, at the George Mason University. Tell us a little about Mercatus Center. What what is that all about? Sure. So we're kind of like a think tank, except we're affiliated with a university. So we take that affiliation very seriously, and we hold all of our research to the highest of academic standards in terms of peer review and so forth. So we are a policy research shop affiliated with George Mason University in Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. We also have a number of graduate students programs, and so we fund graduate students all over the country, primarily who are studying economics, but also other issues as well. Mm-hmm. And you guys are a free market think tank, correct? Yeah, I would say we definitely have a market bent, if you will. Well, then that, that, that's what Mercatus means, right? That's just, that's Latin for market, isn't it? Right. That's right. Okay. It's Latin for markets. That's right. Okay. So you, you extensively, you've written about regulatory reform and, and you write extensively about regulatory reform. And I know you recently, we published a piece of caffeinated thoughts that you wrote. Um, how does Iowa compare to other states as far as the regulatory uh, uh, environment? Sure. So over the last couple of years, I've been involved in a project to try to quantify how much regulation all the various states have. This is part of a project we have in Mercatus called Reg Data, where we use text analysis to quantify various aspects of regulatory codes. So most states have, have regulatory codes that are just too long for anyone to read. So we use computers essentially to try to make sense of them. So the the Iowa administrative code, for example, is about 10 million words long. Mm-hmm. And so it would take about 14 weeks to read if you just read regulations for 40 hours a week. Uh, so this is one of the reasons why we have to use computers. Um, this is you, don't, you, don't actually, you don't actually want to sit down there and, you know, and just read. I mean, that, that, that would have to be riveting reading as far as I'm concerned. I think that's yeah. It's also, yeah, even if you actually sat and read all the regulations, that's very different from comprehending them um, and absorbing any of that information. So um, 
So we have a couple different metrics that we use. One is to just count up the number of words. One is to count up restrictive terms, so words like shall, must, prohibited, required, words that can signify um, requirements of various kinds. And so if you use the, go by a account of regulatory restrictions, instances of these terms that can signify requirements, Iowa has about 161,000 of these restrictive terms in its administrative rules. And that's actually a little above average for the country. So the average state is about 135,000 regulatory restrictions. The most regulated state by this measure is California with 396,000. Which so, probably surprises no one. Uh, <laughs> probably surprises no one. So it's about double the size of Iowa's code. The least regulated state is Idaho with about 39,000 restrictions. And so there's a lot of variation. Um, you have California about 10 times the size of regulatory, the regulatory code in Idaho. And the federal administrative code has, has about 1.1 million of these restrictive terms in it. And that the federal code is about 100 million words long and would take about three years to read. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine that. That's, that's crazy. So uh, have you dug a little bit deeper into Iowa's administrative code as far as um, to see kind of what what some of the more onerous uh, regulations would be? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. So we put out um, we put out a report in early 2018 looking that was kind of, it called a snapshot of Iowa regulation. If anyone's interested in Googling it and reading it. And we broke down the most regulated industries. So in addition to just counting up terms in the code, we also look for words that are relevant to particular industries. We can figure out which regulatory agencies are producing the most regulations. So in that report, um, we found that food manufacturing is the most regulated industry, which might not be a total surprise. Um, Ambulatory healthcare services was among the most regulated uh, crop production different kinds of manufacturing. Uh, The public health department was the biggest regulator with about 24,000 of these restrictions, just in its title. Um, Natural resources department was another big regulator with about 20,000 restrictions. Commerce department, human services department. These are some of the biggest regulators. So uh, we can break down the numbers in different ways with our data, which is one of the things that makes it pretty interesting. Okay. So what, what are some of the consequences of these regulations? Sure. So we have much more research at the federal level at this point. Uh, the, the, the data at the state level is relatively new. Um, so we haven't been able to do as much academic research with it other than just produce some of these baseline numbers to how many regulations there are. But at the federal level, we have data going back to 1970. And so we've been able to do a lot of research and a number of studies which of which are now published in peer-reviewed academic journals. And so there definitely seem to be, seems to be a relationship between the amount of regulation and economic growth. Um, my colleagues, some of my colleagues have estimated that federal regulations are slowing national economic growth by a little under one percentage point a year. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but it means that if you say capped the amount of regulation that, that we had in 1980, then by 
2012, the economy would have been about $4 trillion larger, which works out to about $13,000 per person. And mm -hmm. that's basically just because if you slow the growth rate by 1% a year, then you get this kind of compounding cost over time. Now, uh, how, also, how, how, I'm kind of curious, how do they come to that conclusion? If there's a way you could kind of explain it in like sixth graders terms? Sure. Sure. So, so we're able to estimate how, how many regulations there are on a wide variety of different industries. And so we look at how those, how the amount of regulation changes across those industries and how the um, output of those industries changes over time. And then okay. uh, we're through, by looking at those changes, we're able to estimate what's the effect of regulation on output, Con also controlling for other factors as well. And any study like this, you're going to make certain assumptions. There's an economic model involved in that study. Uh, but I should mention that there's a, there's a, fairly sizable literature now on this question, how does regulation affect growth? And I recently conducted a review just looking at all the studies that look across countries using OECD data and World Bank data. And I think it's fair to say there's a consensus that at least certain kinds of regulations slow economic growth. So okay. regulations that create barriers to entry or that are anti-competitive tend to slow growth. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I, I thought that was important so we knew how you guys came to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So some um, of the I other... Think, yeah, I mean, there's other, there's other research, too, we've looked at. We've looked at the effect of regulation on poverty, income, inequality, wages. Um, I have a paper coming out about mortality. So there's, a, there's evidence that regulations increase mortality in some cases. Uh, a lot of these effects tend to be regressive, so lower income groups tend to be disproportionately burdened. Uh, so there's quite a bit of research that's that's coming out using the data that we've been producing at Mercatus. Okay, so pushing for regulatory reform, what what states are doing this well? Sure. So uh, Oklahoma is a state that kicked off a regulatory reform earlier this year. Governor Spitt there signed an executive order. And part of what they're doing is um, they, I, I guess you would broadly call it a red tape cutting effort. Um, and they've counted up the number of regulatory restrictions they have and set a 25% reduction goal and also implemented a one in two out policy. So for every new regulation, they're gonna eliminate two. Uh, a number of other states have implemented policies like that. Idaho put in place a one-in, two-out policy like that in early 2019. President Trump issued an executive order at the beginning of his administration that had a one-in, two-out policy. Uh, Ohio passed a law saying one-in, two-out. So that's a policy that's been uh, picked up in quite a few jurisdictions. But there have been a number of states to have just general red tape cutting efforts in recent years, Kentucky, Missouri, um, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Idaho. Uh, so it's kind of, there's kind of a wave of these kinds of reforms happening right now. And I, I remember reading Idaho actually has a sunset policy, don't they, for their, their regulations? Yes. Yeah, so Idaho had a very interesting set of circumstances occur last year. 
So Idaho has a, a kind of unique policy where every year the entire regulatory code expires. So there's a one-year sunset attached to the entire regulatory code. Uh, unless the, the legislature passes a law that says we're going to extend the code for another year. And every year that this policy has been in place, which I think it was first put in place in the 90s, the legislature has always just reauthorized the code. Well, mm -hmm. due to some infighting between the, the different chambers, the House and the Senate, in Idaho, they ended their session in 2019 without reauthorizing the code. <laughs> so I think this was in April, they ended their session and the code was set to expire in early June. So essentially the governor there had a couple of months to try to figure out what to do. And it actually created a, a great opportunity for the governor. He wasn't just going to let every regulation in the state expire. Uh, right. So what, what he was able to do was basically rewrite the code and reissue a new code as and most and a lot of the rules didn't change at all. They were just kind of reissued in, in similar form and um, and reissue them as emergency regulations and kind of and then re refile the rules, which were then subsequently reviewed by the legislature um, mm -hmm. so that basically they put in place a new, more streamlined code. And as a result, they cut about, uh, well, they, they cut or modified about 75% of their rules. And they cut, I, I forget, maybe 20,000 restrictions or so from the, from mm. the code. It depends how you measure it. Um, right. There's a bunch of stats on their governor's website about all the rules that they cut, but they, it was one of the most substantial regulatory reforms I think we've seen in the states ever. Um, and it happened as kind of, kind of an act, happy accident in a way. But I think that if you talk to people on the ground there, they say it was, this was a really great uh, opportunity to really review a lot of rules that just hadn't been reviewed in a long time. And some of them just needed change, changing. And it, it actually wasn't that controversial the way it all played out. It was surprising to people, but the governor didn't abuse this authority that he was given. Okay. So uh, one one of the things I, I've you know been frustrated with is is the legislative branch, both at the federal as well as the state level, uh, how they empower the administrative state by giving so much, ceding so much power in their legislation over to the you know the executive branch. Is that something that you've noticed as well, or am I just like totally off base? This is clearly a pattern that we see at the federal level and across the states is that over time, more and more authority tends to be delegated away from the legislature to these administrative agencies in the executive branch. And so when I talk about regulations or administrative rules, I'm talking about the laws that these administrative agencies write mm -hmm. um, and they're delegated this lawmaking power to, by legislatures. Um, you know, there are ways to try to return and restore some of that authority to the legislature. So Wisconsin is an example of a state that a couple of years ago passed something called the RAINS Act, uh, which basically says that the legislature has to vote on new regulations, at least regulations that are the biggest new regulations, the most costly regulations. So there has to be mm -hmm. some legislative approval. The, actually, the sunset provision in Idaho is, is 
intended to do something similar. It's set up as a one-year sunset, but in practice, what it means is any new regulation has to be voted on by the legislature. Otherwise, it will expire. Uh, so okay. those, like a, a one-year sunset, something like the RAINS Act, which requires the legislature to vote on new regulations, these are ways to try to restore some of that authority. I'd say mm -hmm. most states don't have systems like that, but there's a handful that do. Okay. Yeah, I'm also thinking too, as far as some of these some of these law legislation so broad that it, I mean, it they don't really they don't really specify. It's like, yeah, we'll just we'll just let them decide how they're going to enforce it, uh, whatever agencies involved. Um, you know, I, I, just one example would be the Every Student Succeeds Act. It's like, uh, and we'll give this power to the Secretary of Education um, rather than specify, you know. Uh, providing some more specificity, I think, uh, or am I, uh, is that something that you think legislatures should maybe provide a little more meat to legislation and provide a little more direction, or you think that's going too far? I think that the more specific and detailed the legislature can be, the better in general. I mean, there is a trade-off to some extent. So, uh, look, I mean, legislators often don't, there's tough decisions maybe they don't want to make and they kick the can over to the regulatory agency and to, to make the hard call. And the regulatory agency is insulated somewhat because they're not accountable to voters as directly. And so maybe they can make a right. tough decision that politically a legislator can't make. Maybe, maybe they also have some expertise um, on staff that legislators don't have. So there can be some True. benefits to delegating some decisions to regulatory agencies. But at the same time, you don't, you sometimes just be very broad delegations of power, which will authorize regulations for decades. And rules will be written years and years later that just don't, were never the intended effect of the original delegation of authority. Um, and so that that can create challenges. I mean, one one way around this issue is a system like they have in West Virginia. So in West Virginia, any new regulation actually has to be approved by the legislature. So in mm -hmm. a sense, um, the rules that the, these administrative agencies write are just are then codified into statute by the legislature, uh, so long as they approve of them. Um, right. So that's kind of an extreme case where you almost don't even have administrative rules. You just have just have the legislation written by the legislature that codifies the rules when they agree to it. Um, okay. And I would, I would say in general too, I think the states are a little bit better about mm -hmm. giving more detailed instructions to these administrative agencies. It's, it's really at the federal level where you see really That's broad right. authority delegated and yeah. um, that can be a problem. Oh. I'd have to agree with that too. At least my experience looking at legislation in Iowa, they definitely do a much better job. And um, Iowa's process, we don't, the full legislature doesn't approve regula you know, new regulations. We have an administrative, uh, administrative uh, rules committee that's a joint committee between House members and Senate that decide. Um, just talking about Iowa, you know, here, where should Iowa get started on regu regulatory reform? If you were to advise Senate and House leadership, what, what would you say, this is where, this is the first step you should take? So I think uh, there's kind of a model that we have now that a lot of states are following 
in terms of red tape reduction that seems to be pretty successful. And that involves measuring how much regulation you have, setting a goal for how much you want to reduce by, maybe putting in place a process requirement like one and two out, and then after a few years, putting in place a cap to lock in the reductions you've achieved. This, this general model stems from, it, it originates from a reform, a reform that actually happened in Canada in the early 2000s mm-hmm. in the province of British Columbia. British Columbia cut its regulatory code in half over about a 15-year period. They cut it by a third within three years and in half over time by following the system, basically measure, count, cap, cut, and then, you know, get, lock in place what you're what you've achieved with a with a final cap at the end as well. And um, people are surprised to hear that Canada has been kind of at the forefront of regulatory reform, but it turns out mm-hmm. to be the case. And this, this British Columbia mo- example was very unusual because if you look across most government jurisdictions across the world, the tendency is always for their for the amount of law to grow over time. We add more rules each year. Then are taken away, and the code gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's that's the story at the federal level. Of the code of federal regulations was about 10,000 pages in 1950. Now it's 180,000 pages, and each year we just tend to get more and more rules. Well, British Columbia was going the opposite direction, and so some of the states have seemed to have picked up on this model. And so we've seen places like Idaho, they're cutting regulations, Missouri has cut the amount of regulations they have pretty substantially in the last few years. Kentucky's made some cuts, Nebraska, um, and then there's states like Ohio or Oklahoma that are just be, kind of beginning regulatory reforms, but are also following that model. So I think in Iowa, you'd probably be wise to look at some of these other states and maybe emulate what they're doing. This could be done through executive actions. It could be the governor could issue an executive order that could could start off a lot of these reforms, or the legislature could pass legislation, which would likely be more permanent. Um, but different states are taking different approaches depending on their political environments. Okay, uh, just want just want to end the podcast. Just talk a little bit about what's going on at the federal level and how that might change with the change in administration. Um, you already mentioned President Trump is his. Uh, implemented the one the one in two out policy are there anything else are there any other changes that the uh the trump administration has has appro- taken to approach cutting the regulatory uh environment sure so in in one of president trump's first acts as president in 2017 he signed this executive order which put in place the one in two out policy and it also created the first regulatory budget in the federal government. So a lot of people aren't aware of this just because one and two out has gotten more attention, but he's actually allocating cost amounts to different agencies and saying you can't impose more than this amount of cost on the public this year. And this is the first time that this sort of cap has been put in place on regulatory agencies' ability to basically force Americans to, to spend money each year. Um, and in many cases, the cost caps are negative, meaning agencies, you have to find ways to reduce burdens on the public. Um, so this executive order, I would say, is one of the most, um, it's one of the biggest changes to the reg- federal regulatory system we've seen since 
the early 1980s and changes that the Reagan administration made. And in all likelihood, a Biden administration will repeal the executive order. So we've seen a major slowdown in the amount of new regulations issued under the Trump administration. We haven't seen huge reductions in the overall size of the federal regulatory code, but we've seen we've seen this trend of just adding more and more rules each year kind of grind to a halt. So they've slowed that flow of new regulations. So mm-hmm. I would expect that to probably reverse under the Biden administration, and we'll, we'll probably return more to the historical norm, which is adding thousands of new rules each year. Um, I could be wrong. It could, it's possible if Biden tries to you know, maintain keep some bipartisan support. Maybe he'll keep elements of this executive order in place. But Trump's executive order is pretty unpopular among Democrats. So I would expect it will be repealed. Which is unfortunate. Okay. So uh, COVID-19, we're expecting a, a vaccine here pretty soon. How, how does the regulatory environment hamper the production of a vaccine? Um, okay, so I'm not necessarily the biggest the expert on vaccine approval, but uh, sure. what I will say is that clearly you need FDA approval to get a vaccine to market. Uh, a tip for a typical drug in not during a pandemic, it, 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 the estimates out there that are that it costs about two billion dollars to bring a drug to market. So clearly, that um, impedes a lot of drugs from ever ever coming to market um there are there are some sound reasons for that you know unsafe medications are weeded out but there are also maybe safe medications that are it's just too expensive and so we never get them um there's been there's an emergency approval process that's been speeding things up a bit during the pandemic and we've seen all kinds of emergency use authorities granted by the food and drug administration for different kinds of COVID-19 tests, um, and most likely the vaccine will get some kind of emergency approval like this as well to bring bring some of these um, medications and tests to market faster. And I think it's telling that we haven't had any major crises. We haven't seen a bunch of faulty tests come to market. We haven't seen, uh, we'll see with the vaccine, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But so it, it does seem like, hey, we can probably speed up this process a bit and we don't lose a lot. If, it, if we can do it during a pandemic, maybe we could do it during ordinary times as well. And then um, another major challenge is just going to be getting the vaccine to people. So right. even once we have a vaccine, that's, that's step one. Then, then the next step is getting people to take it. And so I wrote a piece in the Hill newspaper um, a week or two ago, basically arguing that pharmacists and pharmacies in general are are a a great resource. Most people live within five miles of a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Even in quite rural areas, there's usually a pharmacy nearby. People are used to going, getting a flu shot at their local CVS or Walgreens. And so uh, we should empower pharmacists and also pharmacy technicians who are the support staff of pharmacies to, um, to give give out vaccines. And, and the Trump administration is actually, to their credit, has actually been issuing guidelines saying, authorizing a lot of these activities. But in ordinary okay. times, it's not always, it's not always easy for these 
for pharmacists to administer vaccines. True, true. Well, it, how can uh, people learn more about the Mercatus Center? Sure, you can go to mercatus.org if you're interested just in our general research. My name is James Broll. You can Google my name, find some of my papers. You can go to quantgov.org, and that's where a lot of the data that we've produced as part of our reg data project exists. Mm -hmm. It's Q-U-A-N-T-G-O-V. And um, you, you can download data if you're and look at some figures and maps and things like that if you're interested in seeing how Iowa or any other state compares in terms of regulation. We've also looked at some other countries like Canada and Australia. You can look at their data as well. Great. And I'll make sure I have a link to your bio page because I noticed all your works is, is listed on that page mm -hmm. as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Great talking to you. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Okay. Right, Thanks. You too. Bye. And that concludes today's episode of the Caffeinated Thoughts Podcast. I hope you uh, enjoyed listening and you learned a lot. Please uh, be sure if you are listening to this podcast somewhere other than on our website, check out caffeinatedthoughts.com. Again, that's caffeinatedthoughts.com, or you could just Google caffeinated thoughts and it'll show up at the top of your search screen. Also, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, sign up for our emails so that way you don't miss a single update. And we also encourage you to subscribe to our uh, podcast and using any number of podcast apps, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, um, what am I missing, Stitcher. So we're on all of those as well as Blueberry. Uh, so, some additional providers coming soon. Until next time, my friends, this is Shane Vanderhart. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next time.